0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet on a Saturday morning in Greeley, Colorado. This is... May 22nd, 2021, episode 59 of season 3 and episode 124 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today we're going to talk about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy and theological interpretation. Now, I've seen a story here recently. I'd like to start out with It was a headline, really, and it's not a new one, but it brought up a question in my mind. The headline went a little bit something like this. Catholic bishops are in a bit of a tough spot when it comes to giving communion or threatening to withhold communion from pro-choice, so-called pro-abortion, Roman Catholic politicians here in America. What's a bishop to do? when he's teaching, when the official position of the church is teaching, when the Bible is teaching that murder is a sin and that it's wrong and that it's evil. And yet you have persons in your midst who claim to be Roman Catholic and yet are adamantly pro-choice, pro-abortion. They argue the merits of abortion being legal maybe even subsidized, maybe even paid for. Not only are we going to make it legal, we're going to protect your right to murder your unborn child in the womb, we're also going to get you the money to do it by taking from other people who don't even agree with this, who are appalled by this, who are repulsed by this, who feel a mental, emotional, spiritual anguish over this. What is a bishop to do when... They're faced with the choice of whether to give communion to a Roman Catholic politician like Joe Biden, like Nancy Pelosi, who claims to be a Catholic, a Roman Catholic. They run on it. They campaign on it. They get up in press conferences and they have their spokespeople get up in press conferences and say silly things like Jen Psaki did a few months back early into Biden's administration, saying silly things like he attends church regularly. And a bishop in his district, in his area, a local bishop has a concern about giving communion to Joe Biden, to Nancy Pelosi, to others, but also faces opposition from higher up. In the Roman Catholic Church. In the case of Biden, you don't have a recent conversion, supposedly. He is not a new convert. He is not somebody who just now, recently, a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, claimed to have become a Roman Catholic and entered the church. He's claimed for a long, long time to, and yet his conduct, his positions, his claims, his positions do not match up with the teaching of the church. And so what does he do? This was a concern when John F. Kennedy was running for president, the first Roman Catholic to ever be elected president of the United States. It was a concern while he was running. Will he be the president or will the Pope actually be the president? In our case, we have Joe Biden. And Joe Biden says that he is a Catholic And Biden is an honorable man, as Mark Anthony might say. He claims to be a Catholic. He's claimed a long time to be a Catholic. The things he is advocating do not comport with Roman Catholic belief. Yet here we are. Who in the Roman Catholic Church with any authority, who is regarded as being authority, is willing to say, you are anathema. You are cast out. We excommunicate you unless you repent. And if they do, then does that question from when John F. Kennedy was running crop back up? Who is actually running the country? Is it Joe Biden? Is it the bishop? Is it Nancy Pelosi? Is it the bishop? That's a problem. That's a concern. Now, just a short year ago, We had a similar problem, but it wasn't ecclesiastic in nature. It wasn't religious in nature, so-called, necessarily, as people think of religion. But we had the sitting president of the United States in possession of social media accounts, which he used to great effect. And when I say great effect, I mean he used his social media influence to get his message out and to bypass the mainstream corporate media, NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, CNN, even Fox. He got around biased reporting that was not actually reporting, it was propaganda, by tweeting, by making posts to Facebook. And then, as we closed in on the 2020 election, as we closed in on the inauguration, his content, the content being put out by his spokespeople, being put out by even news media that was friendly to him, politicians who were in cahoots with him, found themselves deprived of their social media platforms. They found themselves deplatformed. They found themselves shadow banned. They found themselves locked out. They found their content was given a writer. This claim is disputed. This claim is being fact-checked. Here is the fact check. So then whether you call Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg a private citizen, a business owner, whatever you want to call them, that same question that was being asked when John F. Kennedy was running who will actually be the president? Will it be Kennedy or will it be the Pope? That same question crops up, believe it or not, whether we're asking it or not, when you have Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg deciding what the sitting president of the United States gets to say and what he doesn't get to say, what his spokespeople get to say and what they don't get to say. It's remarkable to me that the left has all of these concerns If a bishop starts talking about withholding communion from Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi, and yet they don't seem to have similar concerns when it comes to Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg, nominally secular authorities withholding a social media account from Donald Trump. What's up with that? Is there a double standard there? Is there a blind spot? Is there a marriage of convenience? Is there hypocrisy? I would say that there is hypocrisy. Methink think the lady doth protest too much. But coming back to the question of interpretation and authority in the church, we'll leave the political situation of our day alone for just a moment. Set it aside. And I want you to go back to the 3rd and 4th centuries AD with me. I'm reading... Constantine the Emperor by David Potter. Right now, I'm down to the last 10%, less than that. Constantine the Emperor took Christianity from being, at best, a tolerated religion, at worst, a persecuted religion in the Roman Empire, to being a protected religion, even a favored religion. Constantine is the one who called for the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed. Constantine wanted to resolve a schism that was developing in the church of that day. And one of the things that you read in Potter is that Constantine, having just resolved a civil war within the Roman Empire over who was going to be the emperor, could not bear to have a schism and a civil war within the Catholic Church. Catholic at that time, not necessarily meaning centered on Rome, although I would say in particular because of Constantine's contribution, it came to be known as synonymous with the Roman Church, particularly where Constantine weighed in, chimed in, inserted himself. But the Catholic Church just meaning the universal church, One church, Christ's actual church. He was concerned about the Catholic Church, the universal church, Christ's church being divided over what he thought were fairly trivial matters. What is the nature of God in terms of the Trinity exactly? Was Jesus created or is he eternal along with the Father and the Holy Spirit? What is the nature of the Trinity? What is the nature of God in terms of being triune, in terms of being eternal, co-equal? That's a big deal. Who is Jesus makes a very big difference in how we express our faith, and that's what the Nicene Council was supposed to resolve. But who was Constantine? By some claims... He had his son, Crispus, put to death by consuming cold poison, quote-unquote. And then later on, when his wife gets upset about this, he has his wife put to death by bathing in a superheated bath until she expires. That's a claim. Who knows whether it is actually true, but it's possible. It's possible that that's true. Why did he do it? I don't know. It makes it into the historical record, or it's at least believed that he did it. It's not so uncommon for Roman emperors to do those sorts of things, to have family members put to death because they start undermining their authority or are causing trouble, or just because the Roman emperor can, just because he has that power, he has that ability. And sometimes men, when they are given unlimited power, do corrupt things when they don't believe themselves to be accountable to anybody when they only have one view in mind, and that is to expand or retain their power. The things which men are capable of can be very dark indeed. And so we'll leave with a question mark whether Constantine killed his son and his wife or why or how. But before I read Constantine the Emperor by David Potter, I read this book, that translation of Eusebius, the church history. And Eusebius has this very glowing view of Constantine, obviously takes him at his word that he had a genuine conversion. Potter does not seem to take that view. I don't know why it is, with Constantine being as pivotal as he is. I can only find one audiobook biography of Constantine, the great, as they call him. I don't know why there aren't more, but the one that comes up by David Potter takes, I would say, a more skeptical view of Constantine's conversion, whether it was genuine, whether it was a shrewd political calculation designed to disrupt his rivals, his opponents, to create a vacuum which he then could exploit in his bid for power. Is that possible? That he was motivated by such things? Yes, it is possible. Read Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince for more on that. The prince should pretend at virtue, but he shouldn't actually be constrained by rules. He shouldn't actually be constrained by morality. He should have a free hand to do whatever he thinks he needs to do in order to get or secure or retain power. And so... If Constantine was very clever, this might have been a shrewd political maneuver, and he was using the church as a wedge, as a lever, to push out the pagans that he needed to push out from the reign of Diocletian. But even if it was genuine, let's consider the possibilities here. Constantine has a genuine conversion. He comes to faith in Christ. Then what? Right? Imagine you're in his shoes. You've been raised a pagan. You've not been a Christian your whole life. You know that there is this religion called Christianity, but it's persecuted sometimes. Sometimes it's just barely tolerated. Christians are not necessarily treated like, spoken of like good Roman citizens are. They're viewed with suspicion as troublemakers as disobedient, maybe even cannibals, maybe even incestuous, and then all of a sudden you have this vision that Christ is king, that the God of Christianity is the greatest God, the ultimate authority, the God of gods, and that he wants you to sally forth with your troops carrying this symbol, which David Potter doesn't even seem convinced necessarily represents Christianity. He thinks or claims or alleges that it was ambiguous enough that it could go one way or the other. It could be symbolizing Christianity. It could be symbolizing some other sect or cult or phrase like luck. Good luck. But let's just keep on this trail wherein Constantine was genuine. He had a genuine conversion. He comes to Christ and then he prevails. He wins. His army wins the battle against his rivals. And Constantine goes from being a claimant, a competitor, to being the champion, being the great Constantine, the great. The world is his oyster. The Roman Empire is his oyster. How much does he let his newfound faith influence his governance? How much does he work to purge paganism from the Roman Empire? And how much does he tolerate paganism, much the same way that Christianity was formerly tolerated. How much does he even participate in art, in statuary, in ceremonies, in some things which have always, for the whole history of Rome, been pagan rituals, pagan symbols, pagan cults, because in the Roman mind, there is no separating these things. And that's why the Christians were persecuted the way that they were. How free of a hand does Constantine have to go pushing out every last vestige of paganism from the Roman Empire? And should he? Should he do that? My oldest son's name is Josiah. And when you read about King Josiah in the Old Testament, he was a king of Israel. And he was a good king. He was a young man, young boy, when he first came to the throne. And then at a certain point in his reign, the temple is being restored, it's being renovated, and an old copy of God's law is found, tucked behind a wall or some such. And it's dusted off and it's brought to Josiah and it's read aloud. And when it's read aloud, he tears his robes, he tears his clothes in grief because Israel has not obeyed the words in the law of God, which God gave to the children of Israel to obey. And Josiah, king of Israel, begins working very, very hard to drive out all the prophets of Baal, to destroy their altars, to destroy the Asherim poles. He works very hard to push out paganism and idolatry and the worship of false gods from his nation. He's very, very zealous. He's so zealous, in fact, that at a certain point, the Pharaoh of Egypt is coming out to make war against somebody else, and Josiah musters his troops and goes and attacks. But before he attacks, Pharaoh sends a messenger and says, I am doing the Lord's work. We don't know the rest of that story. It's an interesting claim. It also could be disingenuous, but let's presume for a moment that it's legit that God had sent a messenger to Pharaoh, and we just don't know anything about that story. We don't need to know anything about that story except that God sometimes does that. We see elsewhere in this in the scriptures that God does that sometimes even with pagan kings, he maneuvers them he pushes pushes them in a certain direction like pieces on a chessboard the heart of the king is in the hands of the lord and he turns it where he will it's like a stream of water and pharaoh sends this messenger back to king josiah and i'm paraphrasing but don't interfere with me i'm on a mission from god like the blues brothers i'm taking a lot of creative license there in case you can't tell But Josiah keeps on going. He keeps on going anyways. He doesn't listen. And he ends up getting shot with an arrow. He ends up dying of his wounds. And that's the end of Josiah. Is he overzealous? Did he ignore the advice of King Solomon to neither be good too good nor too wise for why should you destroy yourself? Did he not know when to stop? Did he not know when to stop? to put the brakes on. Just like God can use a pagan king, a pagan pharaoh, to do his will, to accomplish his purposes, despite the corruption, the sinfulness of that king, that ruler who does not necessarily honor God, just so can God use even the mistakes of a supposedly godly ruler, a supposed follower of him, can God use even the sin and the error? Can he restrain a devotee of his from doing a good thing that he ought to do? I don't know. That question bothers me with regards to Constantine. If Constantine was doing unscrupulous things, was he genuine or was he A fox guarding the hen house when he called for a council of Nicaea to assemble to resolve this question regarding doctrine, the doctrine and practice of the church. I think you can trace the whole Roman Catholic problem through Middle Ages on up to the Protestant Reformation. You can trace it to Constantine's reign. I think that marks a major turning point wherein the power of the Roman government is mixed in, sometimes subtly, with ecclesiastic authority. When you have Roman emperors saying, here's who is legitimate, here is who is not, this person we're going to raise up, this person we're going to to tear down, and remove, and replace. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump from that to Roman Catholicism, wherein you transpose the authority of a Roman emperor onto the Pope. So then who is actually in charge, legitimately? Whose word is final? And does it get a little bit mixed? Does it get muddy? Is the... Pope, so-called, Papa, Papas, Holy Father. Is that a title that we find in the New Testament? Or are we told, are we cautioned against calling any man father when we have a father in heaven? God is our father. Are we cautioned even against putting too much stock in what Peter said sometimes? It's funny to me that The Roman Catholic Church claims legitimacy in this unbroken line of succession from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope, down from Peter, and they interpret what Jesus says of Peter when he renames him. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. They interpret that a little oddly as being about Peter specifically. Is it about Peter specifically that Peter, as a man, is the focal point? Or is it that that sentiment that he just communicated is exactly the sentiment that the church is supposed to be embodying on earth? Now, a very clever arguer might say, what's the difference if Christ is saying that that attitude, that sentiment is supposed to be the attitude and sentiment of the church, then wouldn't it necessarily follow that you want the person who Jesus just said embodies that attitude so much that you're going to rename him Peter? Wouldn't you want that guy to be the bishop, the pope, the papa, the holy father? Hmm, maybe. Not when he is trying to curry favor with the Judaizers at Antioch, I wouldn't. Not... If him being the unquestioned authority who can't be questioned, literally, cannot be questioned, cannot be contradicted, cannot be rebuked, not when that might mean that error, rather than being guarded against, gets codified, it gets solidified, it hardens like glue, not when him being regarded as papa and all of his Descendants in that succession, being regarded as Papa, Holy Father, means that error is going to take root, deep, deep root, and be standardized throughout the church rather than rooted out throughout the church, rather than confronted effectively. That's the whole reason why the Protestant Reformation happened, in fact, is that you had councils and popes who had claimed final authority, ultimate authority, to interpret God's word. Yes, God's word is authoritative, but give to daddy, literally. Here, you're going to hurt yourself. You don't know how to use that. Give that to us, and we will interpret it for you, and we will interpret it based on tradition. We will interpret it based on the conclusions of councils and the actions and words and teachings of popes and bishops, and when you get to Martin Luther's day, we will have sellers of indulgences making wild claims about salvation, because the Pope was trying to get grand cathedrals constructed throughout the Catholic Church, throughout Europe, and needed to raise money for that. We need to build these grand cathedrals, but it's going to be expensive. And before that, we need to get some Christian armies mustered to go and make war on the Muslims who keep trying to invade and conquer Europe and have already successfully conquered the Middle East, the birthplace of Christianity. They've conquered Northern Africa. They've conquered Greece. Now we need to get Christians armed, supplied, transported over there, and we have to sustain them while they retake, quote unquote, the Holy Land. So give to the church, donate, and the more money you donate to the church, the more forgiveness you'll receive in return. In fact, this won't even stop with you, you alone might get indulgences, forgiveness, write-offs, tax write-offs of sort, but for sin, for time in purgatory, but so also your dead relatives and loved ones who are in purgatory. The Pope will take time off their sentence in purgatory for your donation, in exchange for your donation. Because tradition and the passage of centuries have muddied things so much that now we think that the Pope has that authority. We think that councils have a right to affirm the Pope's authority to do that, to make such claims. And we don't even have you reading God's Word, reading the New Testament and Old Testament, much less interpreting it, but reading it leads to interpreting it, leads to applying it, leads to asking questions, leads to questioning the Pope, leads to questioning tradition, leads to questioning, so why do we do this? Is this proper? Is this okay? It leads to calling for repentance appropriately when the teaching of the church is in clear violation and opposition and contradiction to what God's word says. You can't have that, so now the Pope is going to consolidate his position, and councils are going to consolidate his position, and you're going to have the Counter-Reformation, you're going to have the rise of institutions within the Catholic Church which are designed not so much to do soul-searching within the Roman Catholic Church but to persecute all who put themselves outside of the Roman-led Church because the Roman-led Church is now the only Catholic Church of Jesus Christ according to them. You disagree with us, therefore, you're not even a Christian. You're a heretic. Because the chief doctrine that we're concerned about is, when we say jump, you say how high. Period. End of discussion. It's odd to me the way that the eastern and western sides of the Roman Empire end up having two different expressions of ancient Christianity. In the West, you have the Roman Catholic Church centered on, of all places, the city of Rome, which is, ironically, but I think also symbolically, the capital city of the Western Roman Empire. That's where it all starts. That's where Rome starts. So is this an expression of Christianity, first and foremost, or is this an expression of imperial Roman power? Is this a holdover? In the East, you have Eastern Orthodoxy, which develops its own traditions, which develops its own organization. It organizes itself differently, and there is a patriarch. But what is really the difference? It's semantics, whether you call somebody, the leader of the church, a pope or papa, or you call him a patriarch. Well, the papa is the patriarch. So, shrug. At a certain point in the history of the church, the church, and here I mean not Roman Catholic church, but I mean Catholic church as in the true Christian church, whether Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, the people who love Jesus, who belong to Jesus. We'll put it that way. The communities of people who belong to Jesus, the larger universal community of people who belong to Jesus. There's this split, and there's a bit of a, a war of words between the Patriarch and the East and the Pope and the West, and it gets unpleasant. And it's odd. On one of the Crusades, they're on their way to the Holy Land, and you've got people with itchy crossbow trigger fingers, and you've got people with itchy sword arms, and they're stopping over in... Constantinople on their way to fight the Muslims, and they decide they're going to do a little bit of target practice. They're going to do a little warm-up routine by sacking, conquering, and sacking and pillaging Constantinople. And they justify this because they see the Eastern Orthodox Church as other. They see it as outside of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore outside of the true church. Who has the authority? Who has the right to interpret scripture? Who has the right to teach? Who has the right to say, this is what God said? Who has the right to listen? Who has the obligation to listen quietly, to ask how high when told to jump? Because that, at a certain point, for disingenuous people, for power-hungry people, becomes the whole point of it. The whole point of it is, I exercise power. Not that the power is a means to an end, but that the power is an end unto itself. It's a bridge too far when you come to the Protestant Reformation and certain things which are clearly in opposition to what the Bible teaches, to the gospel. They are false gospels. The Roman Catholic Church is promoting and enshrining and protecting and preserving and punishing anybody who questions a false gospel. And yes, you might have Christians within the Roman Catholic Church, but they are not saved by the Roman Catholic Church as much as they are saved despite the Roman Catholic Church, despite all of this hoarders type mentality to precedence and tradition. Jesus at one point in the gospel says, woe to you teachers of the law who invalidate the commands of God in favor of the traditions of man. And that is the story of the Roman Catholic Church. That is the story of the Protestant Reformation. You know, I recently finished up Mark A. Knoll's book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And the very last chapter chiefly concerns the response of Catholic leaders, Roman Catholic leaders, priests, bishops, writers here in America and also abroad. Their response to the Civil War was characterized by, we told you so. We told you so. This is what you get when you have a Protestant Reformation. You get all of these different traditions, all of these different expressions, all of these different interpretations of the scriptures, and no centralized ecclesiastical body who can decide these things, who can say, this is what it means, guys, calm down, stop bickering, stop fighting, stop killing your neighbor, stop killing your brother, if this were a Catholic country, you wouldn't have had this problem, but America, the United States of America, is a distinctly Protestant fruit, it is a product of the Enlightenment, which is a product of the Renaissance, The United States of America is a product of the Protestant Reformation. This is a place where Calvinism, in particular, has a lot of influence on the way that people see themselves, on the way they see one another, on the way they express themselves individually and corporately. And when you guys get in a theological debate and a dust up, you can't leave it there, and then you get a civil war that's very costly, very bloody very destructive, heartbreaking. Now, what's rich about that is that you know what those Catholic writers care most about based on the line of attack that they take. What they care most about is their Roman Catholic tradition. They love their Roman Catholic tradition and belonging, and they derive more purpose from that than they do from the scriptures. Otherwise, they wouldn't be judging partially, turning a blind eye, to the presence of these very same sorts of things during the Protestant Reformation. When you have Protestants asking questions and saying, well, what about this? Well, your ecclesiastical body says, no, how dare you? Recant, how dare you claim that salvation is by grace through faith? Like the Apostle Paul says, how dare you say that? Well, that's what the text says. Yeah, but you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed. You don't have the authority to call us to repentance on that point. That's not how this works. Know your place. No, no, you guys are going to leave. We're going to kick you out of the church and then you're going to form your own church because you're persuaded that you still, maybe more than ever, are part of the actual true Catholic church. Whether or not Rome gives you permission to be part of the church? No? Okay, well, you asked for it. Now we get a big bloody war. We get centuries of warfare, in fact, between Catholic countries and Protestant countries, between Catholic princes and Protestant princes. You get people being burned at the stake left and right, sometimes for nothing more than wanting to read God's word in their own language instead of in Latin instead of having to read everything that God says through the filter of what the Pope is willing for you to believe and live according to. So much for your claims of moral superiority, you pretentious jerk. This isn't about the Catholic Church being the solution. Your hardness of heart as Catholics, traditionally, historically, is... What actually caused that split, Luther didn't set out originally to divide and split and break up the Catholic Church. He was trying to reform the Catholic practice, Catholic life and doctrine because it was out of bounds. It was out of step with what the Bible actually said, but he didn't have the clout he didn't have the standing he didn't have the authority, he didn't have the position. he wasn't the Pope, and so therefore. He was the problem if he was asking these thorny questions. So then you've got to withhold communion from him because he's confronting the Pope at a certain point. At first, he's just trying to advise him. Most Holy Father, you clearly must not know that these people are out here making these claims on your authority, on the authority of this bishop. You must not know that they're making these counter-biblical false gospel claims to people and their hustle is not in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must not know it. So I'm telling you because I know that you're going to do something about it, right? Like I know, I know that you are not okay with this and that you are the person who is supposed to be protecting the church from error and you will weigh in on this and bring us back to a right expression of faith. Little does Luther know, but his letter is going to be met with a denunciation, with a papal bull. He narrowly avoids being burned at the stake, not because of a lack of interest in that outcome on the part of the Pope and the bishop and the crowd that loves the tradition and the trappings of the Roman Catholic Church, more than they love Jesus, more than they love God's word, more than they love God's people. Not for lack of interest on their part does Luther avoid being burned at the stake, but because of some clever footwork and the providence of God, he gets out of there. He sneaks away, he's hidden. But all of that brings us back again in the time we've got left, the very short amount of time we've got left, to why it is that you have these ecclesiastic authorities within the Roman Catholic Church today who signal that they're considering withholding communion from Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and yet can't bring themselves to do it. Well, the reason is because now, as for a long, long time, the Roman Catholic Church cares more about power than it does about what's right. Whatever its claims of Vows of poverty and suffering, being persecuted has taken a back seat to calling the shots. And progressivism and liberal theology has infiltrated the very highest levels of the Roman Catholic Church to the point that you have a Marxist as Pope who decries capitalism, who decries the wealth of Western nations, who promotes critical race theory promotes critical theory, and as the vicar of Christ, supposedly so-called, as the spokesperson, as the mouth of God on earth, infallible when he sits in a certain chair in Rome, somehow, magically, because we still are mixing in paganism with the expression of the Roman Catholic Church, he is promoting Marxism and is denigrating conservatism. So therefore, a local bishop's hands are tied. And if the Pope says, you go ahead and give that Joe Biden communion, guess what? Joe Biden is going to get communion. And Jen Psaki is going to continue standing up in a press conference and saying, he attends church regularly. So therefore, we can stick our fingers in our ears and refuse to listen to calls to repentance When the policies that we're advancing are not just not in accordance with God's word, but they run directly counter. They're antithetical to what God's word says. Thou shalt not murder? Okay, I'll murder. What? You hate hands that shed innocent blood? Okay, we'll shed innocent blood. We'll kill millions and tens of millions of unborn children just in America. We're not even talking about abroad where this has been promoted and subsidized, advocated, pushed, will kill untold millions and tens of millions, all under the guise of being good Catholics who attend church regularly. Give me a break. Woe to you, teachers of the law. I'll leave off with Matthew 23, 23-39 in the English Standard Version. This is Jesus, by the way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees that city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here you have Jesus using very strong language, rebuking. And the question we should ask is, Who, at various points in the history of the church, would it be appropriate for us to read into this text? Who has acted like the various parties in this text? Who in our day acts like the parties mentioned in this text, rebuked in this text? I may not always know exactly who, but I pray and I hope to God, not I and not you. And that's why we podcast, That's why we talk about everything, but I got to leave it there. We've got a meeting of the youth leaders at church this morning to talk about what we want to do over the summer. So I need to go get myself a shower, get myself cleaned up, put on some clean clothes, wash my face and prepare to get together and talk about these things, hopefully graciously, hopefully agreeably, hopefully productively. Thanks for listening as always. Until next time, God bless.